special report tonight. Seven Republicans aiming to follow in Ronald Reagan's footsteps in the closing moments of their second debate of the Republican primary in the space bearing his name, surrounded by pieces of his legacy, including the 707 that was Air Force One at the time. Good evening from New York. And good evening from the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, just outside Los Angeles. This, as the name suggests, dedicated to preserving the history of the 40th president's term in office. But it was the 45th president and current Republican frontrunner who took center stage by his absence. The former president was in Michigan tonight and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis pointed that out. He also tried to do what he and the other six have been grappling with without much success so far, namely how to set themselves apart from the former president without also alienating his supporters. We're going to take that up in our coverage tonight, speak with some of the candidates as well as Iowa voters who watched the debate tonight and some who also watched the first one. I want to start, though, with one of the key moments from tonight. Candidates Vivek Ramaswamy, who was vocal in the first debate, continuing in that vein tonight, including in this class with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who was reacting to the answer he gave when asked why he joined TikTok despite it being banned on government-issued devices because of its ties to China. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. Because I can't believe you know, they hear that we've got a TikTok situation. What they're doing is these 150 million people are on TikTok. That means they can get your contacts, they can get your financial information, they can get your emails, they can Let get just text say, messages, they can get all I, this of is important. This is China very important knows for our exactly party. What they're this doing. is very very important and what we've party, seen is say, you've gone and you've helped China stop. build make medicines will, in China, not America. Me, you are now wanting kids to go and get on the social media that's dangerous for all of us. You went and you were in business with the Chinese that gave Hunter Biden $5 million. We can't trust you. We so can't me, trust you. We can't something. have TikTok no, in our think that we, this is we very important. Mr. Ramaswamy, you yes. have 15 Thank seconds. I think, excuse me, you have 15 seconds, Mr. Ramaswamy. Thank you. I think we would be better served as a Republican Party if we're not sitting here hurling personal insults and actually have a legitimate debate about policy. So certainly a lot to talk about here to do it. CNN anchor and senior political correspondent Abby Phillips, CNN senior political commentator David Axelrod, CNN chief national correspondent John King, also CNN political commentator Salissa Farr Griffin, David Urban and Scott Jennings. Um, John King, what did you make of it all? Uh, It was feisty. Uh, the big question, the fundamental question is, if Donald Trump is ahead by roughly 30 points in Iowa and roughly 30 points in New Hampshire, did this change anything? Um, you could see the DeSantis-Haley exchanges. They're both in second place right now. They had a little bit of go at it, trying to be the primary second place candidate. Um, every, I think if you, know, if you like a candidate, everybody maybe had a moment. Um, but does it funda- fundamentally change anything? Uh, I would, I, my answer is no. I'd be interested in what the Republicans who you know, do this for a living uh, do at it. There's another one in 40 days, the third debate. Then there's going to be a lot of pressure to shrink this field, because if you have six or seven candidates and Donald Trump, Donald Trump wins, period. David, that's right. Nikki Haley was definitely trying to kind of repeat the success she had had the first time in taking on Vivek Ramaswamy or, yeah. or Ron DeSantis. Well, and also she got into it with Tim Scott and maybe at the end uh, in a way that wasn't particularly helpful to either of them. Uh, but look, my fundamental view in this in this debate is that several people who didn't do well last time did better, including Ron DeSantis, who I think probably was far 
better served by this debate than the last one. But Tim Scott, who was almost vacant from the last debate, was much more aggressive here. Even Governor Burgum jumped in here with a, a few good answers. And all of this, it seems to me, helps Donald Trump, because rather than creating clarity, it creates more of a muddle uh, for voters. So and, 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 and by the way, you know, for all the random shots at Trump, they were, you know, they went right for the capillary, not the jugular. And he basically got away again uh, with any serious damage, so without any serious damage. I think this was a good night for Donald Trump in the end. Yeah, I mean, it was like a fight for second or third or fourth place among a bunch of people. It, 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 it wasn't, I mean, sure, some people had some moments. Nikki Haley had a lot of, of good, strong moments that really made her stand out. But they're they're fighting for the bottom of the race right now. And that's really not what's called for when the front runner is leading by how much he's leading by. Um, I kind of had a different view of the DeSantis of it all, frankly. I thought he sort of was OK. He kind of faded into the background, especially the first half of the debate. I was sort of like, where where is he? I mean, he didn't speak even for about the first 15 minutes. He was in the center of the debate stage. I checked my clock after about 40 minutes. He'd only spoken about twice. At the end, he and got the most he got, minutes, yeah. yeah, but it, it took him a while to really find his footing. And he's really the person who ought to have the most momentum right now. And I don't think this debate changed his trajectory, which is actually not going up in this race. Just one other quick point on this. Trump always lets you know who he's mad at. Uh, they put out one camp, one general statement from the campaign saying the debate was boring and it was horrible. And they've put out one statement attacking Nikki Haley. Uh, let's see if more come. And there's quite a detailed yeah. attack on Nikki yeah, Haley. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's, no. let's see if more come. But that tells you something about what they think. Yeah. And that was that's what I was going to say. If there was a winner on the stage tonight, I think it was Nikki Haley. But honestly, the conversation we keep having, you know, Governor Chris Nunu says this all the time, is the Republican Party has to winnow the field. We have to start having some folks drop out and consolidate if they want to defeat Donald Trump. Well, what I just saw is a bunch of people who are ready to attack each other over every single policy issue. Perhaps the only uniting force on that stage was how much everyone seems to loathe Vivek Ramaswamy. But honestly, it did not come off like there were some substantive policy issues, but there's nothing that is going to break through from this debate in a way that is going to push down Donald Trump's favorability in any major way. And I'm not sure I would expect to see a major bump for any candidate. David? No, and, and yeah, like uh, as John, John alluded to earlier, right, and, and, and also Abby, Everyone's stealing market share from each other, right? They're not taking any market share away from Donald Trump here. It's, you know, tomorrow, um, you know, Governor DeSantis, who had a strong close, I think. I think Governor Christie had a strong... last five minutes of the debate were the best part of the whole debate, right? There's a bunch of muddling, and then at the end, people got a little clarity. So, you know, there'll be... Somebody will go up a little bit, somebody will go down a little bit, but... The field's not going to be winnowed tomorrow where I wake up and someone's going to drop out, right? And so that's, that's the problem. And, and, and John said there's going to be a lot of pressure in the next 40 days to kick somebody off the island, right? And, and I know that Chris Christie said he'd kick, uh, he'd kick Donald Trump off, but Donald Trump, he's staying on the island. He's the middle. He's the survivor <laughs> mm-hmm. at the end of the game. So Do- Donald Trump is the island. <laughs> <laughs> he he owned the island, but the valuation <laughs> <laughs> The one piece of real estate he can have. Yeah. I, I, I thought this was unwatchable. I mean, yeah, we're all sitting there watching this. The, the, the lighting was bad. The set was bad. The questions were weird. The crosstalk was just maddening. The graphics. The fighting, you know, the constant vitriol with each other. I thought the last of it was, was better. I mean, I think that the next one, DeSantis and Haley, will be at the center of the stage again. Some of these people likely won't make it. But the real question to me is, has the Republican zeitgeist just moved on 
from even the possibility that we wouldn't Mm -hmm. nominate Donald Mm -hmm. Trump. Because right now, what do Republicans believe? They believe Trump is the most electable. For months, we thought, who can make an argument about electability? Well, Trump's already won that question. And at the same time, Biden's having a high-speed come apart, if you look at these national polls right now. So Republicans are like, Trump's beating this guy. We can't lose to this guy. And we're finally going to get vindication. I don't need someone more electable because Trump's going to beat him. And and I don't know that a debate or a TV ad or anything else is going to change that. I mean, it feels to me like one of the reasons that Nikki Haley is having a moment is because a lot of the polls show that she does very well against President Biden, not outlier polls. But a lot of polls are showing that that she, unlike a lot of the other candidates on that stage, she clears the margin of error in some of these polls. And, and so on the electability question, it, it feels to me that she's making the best case for now. She, the only, but t- she the only two polls that matter, she didn't, make, she didn't, have she didn't make the case at all tonight. She, yeah. did, she didn't mention that she was leading in the polls. She obviously didn't think that was uh, a compelling argument for the reason that Scott uh, said the electability argument has sort of faded because of that. But on the question of DeSantis, and I'm, I, I'd like to ask you guys this, uh, it seems to me there were moments there, like when he went counter to a number of people on Ukraine. Uh, I, I was on the other side. Of, I'm on the other side of this issue personally. But I suspect there are a lot of voters in these Republican primaries, if you follow polls, who don't want to give more money to Ukraine. He took a very strong position on that. Those kinds of things are memorable uh, to people, particularly in the states that you've been hanging out in, in Iowa and New Hampshire. I suspect a few of those things may register with those voters. He, listen, he unequivocally, Governor DeSantis unequivocally did better this debate than the prior debate. Um, I was actually noticing you could kind of hear that consultants got in the heads of some of these candidates. He mentioned a story about his wife. He tried to show some heart about visiting Reagan's uh, gravesite. He th- did give the answer in Ukraine, which is a differentiating point. Vivek Ramaswamy trying to play nice guy this time because mm-hmm. the biggest critique last time was he came off so off-putting and unlikable. It was interesting in one of his first answers when he was talking about unions and striking, he expressed sympathy for uh, for workers. And, and I actually thought that was one of his strongest moments. If there is one question that put on display how different today's Republican Party is than the one of 10 years ago, it was the answer around the strikes going on. Um, this, you know, hearing, well, no, hearing that some of these people are taking a much more pro-worker stance. It has less to do with, you know, what you're giving to shareholders or the free market. It's much more about workers. It's much more Pat Buchanan's party than it is, you know, Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney's party. Right. David Astro brought up Ukraine. Let's let's just play some of what, what uh, the conversation about Ukraine was. It's in our interest to end this war, and that's what I will do as president. We are not going to have a blank check. We will not have U.S. troops, and we're going to make the Europeans do what they need to do. But they've sent money to pay uh, bureaucrats' pensions and salaries and funding small businesses halfway around the world. Meanwhile, our own country is being invaded. Uh, We don't even have control of our own territory. We have got to defend the American people before we even worry about all these other things. Our national vital interest is in degrading the Russian military. By degrading the Russian military, we actually keep our homeland safer, we keep our troops at home. At the end of the day, when you think about the fact that if you want to keep American troops at home, the attack on NATO territory 
would bring us and our troops in. By degrading the Russian military, we reduce, if not eliminate, a ta an attack on if I, if I NATO territory. Just because Putin is not an evil, Putin's an evil dictator does not mean that Ukraine is good. This is a country that has banned 11 opposition parties. A win that has for actually, Russia is a that win is not for true. China. We're driving Russia. Excuse me. Excuse me. If you have but a I chance, forgot you like you'll China. Have, That's no, why you're. You'll have, you'll have your chance in just a moment. Yeah. The hurling personal insults isn't helping. China is the real enemy, and we're driving Russia further into China's arms. We need a reasonable peace plan to end this, especially this is a country whose president just last week Vivek, was if hailing you let Nazi Putin have ranks. Ukraine, that's a green light to China to take Taiwan. We need a peace comes through strength. The Chinese are paying for the Russian war in Ukraine. The Iranians are supplying more sophisticated weapons, and so are the North Koreans now as well, with the encouragement of the Chinese. The naivete on this stage from some of these folks is extraordinary. And the fact of the matter is, we need to say right now that the Chinese-Russian alliance is something we have to fight against, and we are not going to solve it by going over and cuddling up to Vladimir Putin. Look, Donald Trump said Vladimir Putin was brilliant and a great leader. This is the person who is murdering people in his own country. There's the divide in the party. That's like the Republicans in the House and the Republicans in the Senate. Uh, you watched it play out on the stage right there where you had Ramaswamy and DeSantis uh, playing to the Trump base, which is America first, which is it's not worth the money. Even a lot of those voters who say, I don't like Putin, say, I want that money. It should go to the border wall first or it should go to something in America first. So you're playing to that piece of the Republican base. And then you had the more establishment candidates saying, hey, wait a minute, Putin's trying to steal a country. America has to stand up and lead. Uh, what was missing is, you know, Donald Trump launched a hostile takeover of the Republican Party in 2016. He won. It's his party now. If there was any place on earth to make the case we need to take it back, if any of them wanted to say we need to take it back, it was the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library yeah. to say, this man took our party. He's not one of us. And you, there were pieces of it. You know, he raised spending. He didn't cut the deficit. He's not really ideological. He's not a conservative. He won't stand up to Russia. A couple of them made the case he wouldn't stand up to China. They didn't connect it to say, Republicans, please, let's take our party back. Now, can that argument win? They're probably outnumbered. You probably can't. But if you're going to try to, if you're going to, try to take it away from him, you have to give an alternative, a bigger, broader alternative to either going back or what a new Republican party would look like. But they all understand there are a lot of Trump voters out there and they can't find a way through that. John, just like Alyssa was raised, raised the issue about, you know, wh where was Donald Trump today, right? Is Michigan appealing to UAW workers, right? I mean, it's a different party than Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan would never stand and say, go to a, an auto party. No, the Reagan plant, Democrat right? name, though, oh, no, came at, right there. Democrats spent 20 years yep. studying that. But, right? but it's a different yeah. party, right, I'd argue now. That, so it's not, it's transformed itself to say we want to claim it back, right? It's, it's different. That party's gone. And let's be We're clear. We're not getting it back. Ronald Reagan would have been rolling around in his grave over that Ukraine discussion happening. But I do have to say, and I hate... I think the moderators did the best that they can, but there were not questions there meant to challenge the number one, the person who's leading the GOP right. nomination. That's what I was most struck by. And I understand we, I, this is kind of a tactic, frankly, we use on the right, which is people care about the pocketbook issues. They care about gas prices. All those things are true, but we also were in a nominating contest. Somebody's about 30 points ahead. This past week, he said his former, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff suggested he should be executed. That seems like a question you would want people to answer. The new 
numerous indictments, the fact that he will likely be a criminally convicted felon at the time that he's the president. And it sort of felt like there were kids' gloves protecting Donald Trump on this debate stage. So unless someone opted to attack him, there was no attacks on him. And very few did. Yeah, they very few people did. And in some ways it almost seemed like because so many of them want to keep their options open. I mean, even someone like a Nikki Haley, um, she's careful Mm -hmm. to not really go after Trump in any kind of aggressive way because— there's always the possibility that he could be looking at that debate stage for a VP. I mean, I think that's a that's a serious part of, of why a lot of it's not just about their voters. I think many of these candidates really don't want to foreclose on even potential opportunities. I well, was, really, did, I was did, to call him just she did call him the most unpopular politician in America at one point in so the she, last debate. <laughs> but but I mean, she, she has actually thought in the last debate and and since she has actually, I think, taken away sort of she's been the only one trying to get the nomination yeah. away from him. She has attacked him. She has pointed out what she thinks are the flaws in his candidacy. These arguments, I'm not sure, are going to work. But I actually think, I don't believe she sees herself as vice president to Donald. I, I think, well, she I, could I see herself as the nominee I mean, in 2028. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, but nobody the, sees themselves as the vice president until they're asked to be the vice president. That's just the reality of the situation. You know, uh, on this point about Trump and the unwillingness to engage uh, in a direct hit on him. Uh, I was surprised when Chris, Chris Christie had a pretty good thing going there, a good uh, litany against uh, Trump. And then he finished with kind of a uh, kind of corny joke about Donald Duck. And what he didn't say, and I'm surprised he didn't, what everybody on that stage but Christie said in the last debate that they'd support uh, Donald Trump, even if he were convicted. Now, there was all this talk about the rule of law on that platform. And how is that consistent with putting a convicted felon in the White House? And he had a clear shot at the rest of the field and he didn't take it. I, I want to play what you're just what you're talking about, the uh, Chris Christie, what he t- said. We've got to bring law and order back to this country and not just in our cities. But we need the law and order back everywhere. We need law and order back in our suburbs. People are threatened there. We need it in our rural areas. People feel threatened there. And we need it in Washington, D.C. also. And Donald Trump should be here to answer for that, but he's not. And I want to look in that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight. Not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on this stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. Missed opportunity. And bad joke, (laughs) which is even more offensive. But but Trump did come after him on Truth Social, proving Chris Christie's point that he was probably watching the debate. I don't know. Maybe Christie has. Look, Christie did not come out of the last debate well. You know, uh, a lot of the, especially given all the preamble about yeah, how he was really going to. The reactions from Republican voters were not very positive to the strategy that he took. Maybe this was the consultants whispering in his ear that he needed to change his strategy a little bit. But at the end of the day, why else is Chris Christie on the debate stage if not yes. to take Trump on directly? Yeah. The best chance for these guys at this point, I think, I mean, it's all about Iowa at this point, right? I mean, there is no, there is nothing else other than Iowa. If somebody doesn't get within five points of this guy in Iowa. 20 points. Th- this race is over. I mean, I, 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 think, I, think, I think some of them say interesting things. I think DeSantis has been an amazing governor. I think Haley is a polished politician. But right now, everything is aiming to Iowa. And, they've, and it does have a reputation for breaking late. 
And maybe the pro-lifers are nervous about Trump, although I doubt it, given he put the three people on the Supreme Court. But if you can't find a way between now and January to get within single digits of Donald Trump, this is academic. DeSantis and Scott are both trying to use the abortion issue against Donald Trump in Iowa because 60 percent last time, 2016, 64 percent identified as evangelical Christians. But that question, to your point about the structure of the debate, which is not up to the candidates, it's up to the moderators, uh, that didn't come up till 15 minutes before it ended. And there, again, there was not a, it was not a Trump focused question. Uh, does that work? Number one. And to your point about it's Iowa only. I mean, Christie's counting on New Hampshire. Right. But, but what he's first he's counting on first he's counting on Iowa to do something for Iowa to shock the race. Oh, Trump is right. not inevitable. He's not invincible. He's not inevitable. And then you come there. But again, again, if you're Donald Trump and you've got five or six viable candidates by then, we'll see so a couple will drop out. You know, Asa Hutchinson didn't make this debate. It's possible that Governor Burgum and even possible that Vice President Pence don't mm-hmm. make the next debate because of the rules. Does the field start to shrink as you get past Thanksgiving toward the voting in January? But even then, if you've still got four or five people spreading the anti-Trump vote, he's fine. And, 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 and to, to, to Scott's point, got to spend a lot of time in Iowa. Got to go 99 counties over and over and over again and sit in people's living room and convince them that you're the you're the you're the nominee. You're the better choice than Donald Trump because he's not going to go to people's living. He's not going to go to 99 counties. He may go to two or three. He's going to show up and it'll be a big you know big presentation and a big production. But he's not going to put in the legwork. And if you really want to win in Iowa, you got to put yeah, the well, time. John, in. John's right. Uh, DeSantis uh, is playing to win uh, to win Iowa, and Christie is playing to compete in New Hampshire, not even running uh, in Iowa. And that explains a little bit of their approaches. But again, just to, to, to restate what I said before, like I think DeSantis is an awkward presence on the stage, less so at times tonight. He looked a little less rehearsed, although he delivered. But some of the substance of what he said was aimed directly at those Iowa voters, not just Ukraine, but his defense of his position on abortion, which he sort of has rewritten history. He said, I was reelected governor of Florida, you know, uh, as a strong pro-lifer. He didn't endorse a six-week abortion ban when he was running for governor of Florida. And if he had, he would not have won by the landslide that he won by. take a shot at the former president. Uh, Let's just play that sound. The people in Washington are shutting down the American dream with their reckless behavior. They borrowed, they printed, they spent, and now you're paying more for everything. They are the reason for that. They have shut down our national sovereignty by allowing our border to be wide open. So please spare me uh, the crocodile tears for these people. They need to change what's going on. And where's Joe Biden? He's completely missing in action from leadership. And you know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record where they added $7.8 trillion to the debt. That set the stage for the inflation that we have. Now, I can tell you this, as governor of Florida, we cut taxes, we ran surpluses, we've paid down over 25% of our state debt, and I vetoed wasteful spending when it came to my desk. And as your president, when they send me a bloating spending bill that's going to cause your prices to go up, I'm going to take out this veto pen and I'm going to send it right back to them. 
Oh, I don't know. Great moment. Well, that, that's his best yeah. moment the whole night. That's yeah. pretty strong. Might be the best moment of the campaign, but if we're being here's honest. The thing. Here's the thing about, I mean, everybody is memorizing lines, right? Yeah. But that seemed really memorized, really rehearsed, delivered perfectly. It was actually good. But, but it was, but, but it, it was, yeah. it was, it was rehearsed. Yeah. And I think that, that DeSantis, when, when you look at that picture, he still seems like a candidate who is struggling to find his footing. He does not seem like, at the end of the day, the, the picture that voters have to have in their mind, Donald Trump versus X. And if that person oh. is Ron DeSantis, I, I don't know that well, that's really uh, Abby, quite the, the problem is Donald Trump is, is great <laughs> at the game, right? He's great at an OTR. You go into a McDonald's. He puts his arm around the, the, the owner of the McDonald's, says, jokes with the guy. I know the menu better than you, right? He's pe- throwing out footballs. He's passing out He's pizzas. He's great at it. So to put anybody against Donald Trump, they're going to pale in comparison. What, what DeSantis should say is, look, I may not be the most entertaining guy, but I'm incredibly effective governor. I'm going to get stuff done. It's not going to be dramatic. It may not be as entertaining, but I'm going to govern strongly. Or convi- uh, maybe to, to me, it's not, uh, the question is not entertaining. It's convincing. And I, and I think that's the, the, I would agree with that. I, can I just add, just add a pedestrian note here? Or just, and, and if Daniel Dale is, we're going to hear we'll from him. If <laughs> he can fact check me on this. But I think that Ron DeSantis yeah, actually, voted he voted to raise the debt limit when he was in the Congress and Donald Trump was passing yes. budgets. I suspect he voted for uh, some of Trump's but fiscal policies. But when Obama policies. was in office, he was a fiscal conservative. But, uh, but, but <laughs> so the, some the central premise of the DeSantis campaign is, I'm Donald Trump without the baggage and with the Florida results, uh, which is a good appeal but, but if have, voters have given up on Donald Trump they and they're looking for somebody like him. Yeah, they they haven't given up on Do- Enough Republican voters have not given up it, on Donald Trump to bigger, make that argument. There is a bigger issue here, though. Tonight... Ron DeSantis was the can- I mean, he was fine. He was the candidate he should have been six months ago. We weren't doing the anti-woke stuff. We barely hit on the culture wars. It was his record in Florida. Right. That works. But I think the cat's out of the bag. And when he got the one question, which if we have the sound, we should play. He got asked for the quadruple time about AP black history, about just uh, the benefits of slavery in Florida. And he just kept doubling down. Yeah. Like, show some compassion, admit fault, act like a leader. We've got to take a quick break ahead. Dana, we'll talk with some candidates. We expect to hear from Vivek Ramaswamy shortly. Also, David Astrow just mentioned Daniel Dale. He joins us with a fact check uh, on what was said uh, tonight, not by David, but by the candidates. And later, what voters in Iowa made of what they saw. That and more is our special debate coverage. Get you ready. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. The second debate of the campaign of 2024 has just wrapped up here at the Reagan Library. As you see, joining me now, one of the debaters, candidate for president, Vivek Ramaswamy. Thank you so much uh, for being here. I want to start by playing for our viewers uh, a moment in the debate where you clearly wanted to get across a message about how you think people feel about you. Yeah. There's exactly one person in the Republican Party which talks a big game about reaching young people, and that's me. And let me level with all of you. I'm the new guy here, and so I know 
I have to earn your trust. What do you see? You see a young man who's in a bit of a hurry, maybe a little ambitious, bit of a know-it-all, it seems at times. I'm here to tell you, no, I don't know it all. I will listen. I will have the best people, the best and brightest in this country, whatever age they are, advising me. I've covered politics for a while. Yeah. When a candidate says something like that, no, I'm not a know-it-all, it might come from research that shows that no. voters are concerned about that. Why did you say that then? It actually didn't show up in any polling numbers, but I understand if I was looking at myself after the first debate, to be really honest with you, and I didn't know me, that's what I would have thought. How come? Well, look, I think that I'm a new guy. People, I have no voting record in legislatures or in the Senate or a governing track record. I do have a business track record, but people aren't familiar with that. And so I understand if I were sitting at home and seeing a 38-year-old guy who's on stage for the first time and you have heard of him not before, I get that I have to earn the trust of people in this country. And I think a big part of it is that we've already been reaching a lot of younger audiences through social media, more effectively probably than many modern campaigns. But most of the Republican primary voter base is not reachable that way. And so I wanted to be candid with people that this is a process. I wasn't in tonight to have one moment. This is part of a steady climb to what I believe will be winning the nomination and reuniting this party and then reuniting this country. And I think that was my mentality on the stage tonight. I'm really pleased with how it went. When you came over here, you said to me that uh, from your perspective, phase one of your campaign is coming yes. to a close and now you're in phase two. Can you explain what that means? Well, most people who come out of nowhere, like me, seemingly at least out of nowhere, in March when I'm polling at 0.0%, would not be at this phase of the campaign. And so that means we need to talk to everybody at all hours of the day. One of the things I've realized about myself, though, Dana, is that I'm at my best when I also create space to actually remind myself to think, to have the vision of this campaign and so of where we're going. And so we're not going to be doing media frenzies or anything going forward. I'll talk to everybody. Left-wing, right-wing media doesn't matter. But I'm going to focus more on what is day one going to look like? And not only just what is day one, what does January 2033 look like? When I leave that office after two terms, hopefully, what do I want to tell the people of this country that we did? From here on out, that's actually my focus. And there's a little bit of a chicken and egg when you start a campaign as an outsider like this. I think we have achieved critical velocity, but now I'm not in this to just be here. Mm -hmm. I'm in this to lead this country and hopefully, dare I say it, reunite this country. And I think that's going to be a different side of me that I hope that people get to know over the course of the next few months. Okay, before you get even yeah. close to what you just described, you very well know that you're going to have to uh, secure the Republican nomination. Yes. You, just like the first debate, uh, there were some knives out for you tonight. Yes. And one of the things that we heard from Nikki Haley and I believe uh, Mike Pence was criticism of you when it comes to China. Yeah, that's puzzling to me, but that's okay. Well, the, the idea is that when you were... I did do business in China. That's true. Okay. And so, first of all, is that criticism fair? Should you not have done business in China? I don't... I wouldn't say that. I'll admit mistakes. But that's not a mistake because every American CEO was expanding into China, and so I was among them. Why did you pull actually, out? Actually, I'm proud of it because I saw what the expectations are if you're doing business in China. You can't criticize... Expectations by the Chinese you can't even or America? By the Chinese. You can't criticize the CCP. So when I started my next business, not only did we pull out from the first business, when I started my second business, Strive, I became actually the first leader of an asset manager to say we would never build an asset management business in China. That was unique. I've probably been the most outspoken CEO in America about the risks of doing business in China. 
As those other governors criticized me, I was thinking about firing back. Each of them has invited Chinese investment into their states, no doubt about it. But I didn't think that was a good use of time on the debate stage. There was a lot of people going back and forth. I don't think that makes the Republican Party stronger. Well, they said that you pulled out your businesses in China because you were turning your attention towards running for political office. No, it's false, actually. It's just, it's just blatantly false. But my view is these personal attacks are meaningless. I've actually made harder commitments than most CEOs. There isn't a CEO in America, I think you're going to find, who has been more openly critical of the CCP. And in the spirit of the Reagan Library tonight, here's my view on foreign policy as well. As Reagan said it about the Soviet Union, what did he say? His vision was, we win, they lose. People laughed at him when he said it. They said, he, like for me, he's an outsider, a simpleton. Well, he actually got that done. And I say that for the Communist Party of China today. That's my strategy. We win, they lose. And I understand it deeply enough to actually lead us to get there. There was another comment that you made tonight that uh, caught my attention. Yeah. You said transgenderism, especially in kids, is a mental health disorder. Yes. How do you know that? Well, it's up through the DSM-5. It has been characterized as a mental health condition. And I come from a place of compassion here. I do not think we're doing these kids a favor when they're confused to say, oh, let's affirm your confusion. Instead of asking an open question, what else might be going wrong in that kid's life? You know, The fact that schools hide that from parents, I think, is, is wrong. It wasn't that long ago that many people in America thought being gay was a mental health disorder. I think there's a fundamental difference here. Unlike for being gay where there's no genetic basis for it, here you have a genetic basis for your gender. Two X chromosomes, you're a woman, and X and a Y, you're a man. Are there rare cases of XXY and XYY? Sure. But that's a fringe case, and I've said in other but forms. But you understand that's that there are people who, who make but the very difficult is, choice to change their gender. Yeah. They don't think that it is a choice. So let's at least draw some boundaries here. And that's not mental health. So how do you respond you, to that? With due respect, I would say let's draw some boundaries. Kids aren't the same as adults. Okay. And so the fact that I have met young women, I met, mentioned two of them on stage, Chloe and Katie, in their 20s, who now regret having gone, undergone both of them double mastectomies, one of them a hysterectomy, one who won't have children, the other one who will never breastfeed her children, who regret it now. That's not something we should allow kids in this country to do, just as you can't get a tattoo so just to clarify, before the age of 18. You're talking about children. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, why shouldn't it be a parent's decision with the family and the doctor? Why is it the government's decision? There, I mean, you're a conservative. Why should I the am. government be involved? And it's a fair question, but I think that there are certain boundaries we draw to say that you can't allow a parent to allow their child to engage in abusive or self-abusive behavior. In other contexts, you can't get a tattoo in most states in this union until the age of 18. There are real hard lines. You can't smoke a cigarette just because because your parent gives you one. So I do think that we have to protect children. I am a free market person. I do believe that if you want to dress how you want, wear a skirt, if you're a man, I'm not going to stop you from doing it. But you're also not going to change the norms and language of our country or how women compete in sports or how people go to which locker rooms they go into. That's not protecting against the tyranny of the majority. What that's really doing is creating a new tyranny of the minority. And I do think it's important to be vocal about that. One last question, just to make sure that I understand your position. You're talking about children. What yes. about adults? If somebody who is 18 and older uh, is transgender, is that a mental health disorder? It's my belief that it is. That is my conviction. I think it's a lot of psychiatrists for most of the last century have. 
But a lot of psychiatrists for most centuries fight gay people. I think I'm going to say something you may agree with me on. It's not my job to be the psychiatrist for every adult in this country. I'm running for president of the United States. We live in a free country. We will treat every person with dignity. But that doesn't mean that that person gets to change our language or the way women compete in sports or otherwise. So that's the way I'll govern as a leader of this country who respects individual freedom, but also respects the idea that we have to protect children because kids aren't the same as adults. And I think most people, even friends on the left, I think quietly agree with me on this. Just think about this issue for a second. If we were to, you brought up the gay issue a couple of times, mm -hmm. the same movement that said the sex of the person you're attracted to is hardwired on the day you're born is now the same movement that says your own sex is totally fluid over the course of your life. And I think that we have to at least acknowledge there's a lot of tension there. And so I know a lot of gay people who are offended by being clubbed into the same group through the LGBTQIA plus alphabet soup. And so I think we have to start treating people as individuals with respect and dignity. Yeah. And I'm in this to unite the country, but I'm also going to speak the truth at every step of the way. This, is, this conversation didn't go as, as, as I expected to have this debate, but all I will just say, and I want to yep. end it here, is that my impression is that people who are gay talk about how they, uh, who they're attracted to. People who are transgender is they're talking about how they feel themselves. Uh, last, last question, just to put a button on this discussion about tonight. Um, do you feel that the dynamic really changed tonight, especially with Donald J. Trump not on that stage? I think it did. I think that I am on a steady climb to be our nominee. The person who wins the Republican nomination is not going to do it without the America First base. I was the America First conservative on that stage. And if you look at my closing remark, I was very clear. Unlike everybody else on that stage who was implicitly bashing Trump, I recognize that he was an excellent president. But I am in this race to unite this country. And that will take someone of a different generation. And I think we go further with our America First agenda if we're united. And also, if many people, independents and even Democrats, are honest about it, I think there are parts of the America First agenda that many of them agree with, too. And so, yes, I will first reunite this party, and then I will reunite this country. I will honor Donald Trump's legacy as we do, because I think that's the right thing to do. But I believe I will take this to the next level and unite all Americans by reaching in part the next generation. And that's the phase of the campaign we're in now. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you so much thank for you. coming over. Appreciate, it, Appreciate it. Good to see you. Thank you. Anderson, I'm going to toss it back to you. Dana, thanks very much. We'll come back to, to Dana with, uh, with more uh, of the folks from the stage tonight. Um, wow, he's got a lot to say. <laughs> Ramaswamy, by the way, I, although I thought most of this debate was unwatchable, the most watchable parts were when, like, Nikki Haley was taking him over her knee and just spanking him <laughs> over his views, his attitude, whatever, all night long. And then all the other candidates got in on it as well. And although he is no threat to get the nomination and he's obviously just running as a Trump surrogate or a, a Trump stand-in, he deserves to be taken to test. After the last debate, we all thought, well, he got all this attention. He's going to get a spike. And he did get a momentary spike. But then, like, we turned the lights on on this guy and nobody likes what they're seeing, the contradictions, the I didn't say that, yes, you did, here's the video, the doing business with China, his crazy views on foreign policy, which continue to come out. So I was personally glad to see uh, someone, I mean, he's a salesman. He's constantly selling, but that's different than having values and principles. And so it, I, just, I just thought that was a good thing that came out of it all. It was interesting to hear him on the stage sort of acknowledge some of those criticisms, and Dana pointed this out. I mean, clearly he saw research on how people viewed him uh, after the last debate and yeah. tacked course, and that was what he said on the stage. Yeah, some consultant said, hey, man, they, they don't like you. They think you're annoying. 
What they said was everything he just repeated back. That's not exactly how you defeat that. But but, but you can tell someone told him that, and he's trying to fix it, which it's not fixable because it's just who he is. You're absolutely right, though. I mean, the idea that an unprincipled salesman could get elected president, that's absurd. (laughs) We got to start. We got to stand up to him someday, don't but, we? Do? It, it, it did feel like with Ramaswamy, the the sort of earnestness and character change he tried to do was about as shallow as his policy viewpoints. It lasted about a minute until somebody called him out on the fact that last time he insulted in a broad swath the entire stage, and then he went reverted right back to who he actually is, which is someone who's antagonistic, incredibly arrogant, and thinks he knows everything. And then on the policy viewpoints, it just he in this interview just now with Diana, you know, he pays homage uh, homage to Reagan, but then he. He literally is once again reiterating that he would just kind of hand over Ukraine to the Russians. Ugh. His ideas on Taiwan are frankly insane, but I do think he is there as a surrogate for Trump. And I think that you'll ultimately see him back. He, he also party. says that, like, he'll say, I think we do better as a Republican Party when we, you know, this is the same guy who just a few days ago admitted in an interview that he doesn't really consider himself to be a Republican. He's just using the Republican Party to try to advance what he sees as his personal And he didn't really have until he was 30. He's running to be a surrogate for, for yeah. Trump. Do you yeah, believe he's looking to get a, a VP nomination? His, his people are playing to get the VP nomination. That would be an absolute radioactive general election ticket. I can't think of two more off-putting people for women, independents, and moderates than Donald Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy on a ticket. But it's something they're positioning for. But I think a number of candidates on the stage probably are as well. I, I disagree with you, Scott. I think that, that I mean... He's still, get, he's still getting market share. When rearranging the deck chairs of, of the people on the stage, he's still, taking, he's still taking it from other folks. Market share that would go where? But that's what I'm saying. No, would it be I don't know, but I'm saying it would go to DeSantis. If it would go to DeSantis, it helps Trump. Right. But I'm, I'm saying he's taking market share from the, the pool of, of market share that's yes. available. Yes. Right? And I think, it does, I think it does take from DeSantis. Listen, it isn't just that he is constantly praising Trump that keeps Trump appraising him. It's also that he's doing Trump's work here. As for someone, it's also, I guess, absurd to think that someone could use the Republican Party who hasn't really, isn't really a Republican (laughs) to, I mean, you know, he is basically following in Trump's footsteps, but the problem is the master's running. So there's not a lot of room for the disciple. I mean, there's always a candidate in these races that puts on the table something totally different, something, something, the easy answer is just right in front of us. And that, that happens all the time. And Vivek seems to be playing that role, but that is not usually a strategy for actually winning these primaries. At some point, those kinds of easy solutions to hard problems that have befundled the whole country for decades and decades, it comes up against reality. And I think that's what Nikki Haley keeps trying to say on the debate stage is that it's one inch deep, and at some point, I mean, this is it, going to be that, that whole thing is going well, to. Let me ask you: Do you think head. Ramaswamy will be on the ballot in Iowa? Do you think he will sure. make, make the, it to Iowa on the ballot oh, in Iowa? Do you think probably? He or has, do you think he may? He has enough money for the last minute and endorse Trump. Sure. No. Listen, you don't I, think so? I wouldn't be shocked. I'm, I, I think oh. because he is doing if he is doing Trump a favor by taking yeah. some non-Trump votes Marketing, away yeah. from others. Uh, I also would point out the guy's 38 or something. Yeah. Uh, he's got he's playing a longer game, which is someday there's not going to be Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to set himself up for Listen, the he, li- he lives in Ohio. Maybe he wants to be governor of Ohio. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, 
Lots of opportunities for the guy. But one missed opportunity tonight, and I understand it's inelegant to probably bring up polls in a debate setting. Nikki Haley performs head-to-head against Biden about six points ahead. Vivek Ramaswamy loses head-to-head to Joe Biden by about two to four points, as does Ron DeSantis. I feel like the case on electability, which we did say is kind of out the window, still should be talked about. If you say Donald Trump is a gamble, we don't know if he can beat Joe Biden. You know who could? Nikki Haley. You know who definitely won't? Vivek Ramaswamy. And that was missing. But you know what the crazy thing about this electability argument is? So central to all the Republican arguments is that Joe Biden is, uh, you know, a a doddering kind of enfeebled old old man who who doesn't know where he is and all of that stuff. Uh, And the impression you'd get listening to them is anybody could beat him. Yeah. Anybody. So I don't even think people are focused that much on this. I, I think I think Republicans have decided we couldn't possibly lose to this guy. So we're going to nominate the person we want. Not the person right, that we exactly. think is most likely yeah. to win. Yeah. But also, honestly, but I they think, do think Trump is the most likely to win as well. But I think there's a lot of Democrats that think we couldn't possibly lose to Donald Trump. And no, that's no, their strategy. I, no, I don't yes. think that's the case anymore. <laughs> I, think, I, I, think, I think lately you're seeing cracks. But I do think you do have this magical thinking in both parties that both, both of our likely opponent is the worst possible yeah. person in the world. How could we possibly lose? When all is right. said and done, how could we possibly lose? Now, somebody's going to be wrong. Yeah. I don't know who. Well, but I mean, will. this might be a, a small distinction, but... I do think Republican voters genuinely like Trump. They believe that he is a strong candidate in spite of all of this stuff. And it's not just for for a lot of Democrats, the polls show it's an anti-Trump sentiment that drives them toward Biden, even if they don't like a lot of other things. But among Republicans, they like Trump. Mm -hmm. They like Trump. And that is the real problem. That's why all of those other candidates are having a hard time. Exactly. Because... They can't undermine the genuine af- af- affinity that he has with Republican voters that it's hard to break with policy. It's hard to break with rehearsed lines. It's hard to break with your rhetoric in whatever state you come from. It's hard to break those things because it's not necessarily tied to anything, you know, on a piece of paper. Well, there's also this tribal. Yeah. I mean, what the indictments have done is it's turned this into a tribal thing and there's a rallying around. Uh, Trump, because they, you know, he has sold this idea that he is under siege for his political views, and and therefore uh, there is a feeling that we should rally around the guy. Well, yeah. We benefit we, from okay. that. Yeah, we mentioned uh, CNN fact checker D- uh, Daniel Dale a moment ago. I want to bring him in now with a closer look at what candidate Ron DeSantis had to say tonight about education. Daniel. Yeah, Anderson, let's listen to a striking exchange that Governor DeSantis had about a very controversial part of Florida's new education standards. Florida's new black history curriculum says, quote, slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. You have said slaves develop skills in spite of slavery, not because of it. But many are still hurt. For the sentence of slaves, this is personal. What is your message to them? So first of all, that's a hoax that was perpetrated by Kamala Harris. Uh, We are not going to be doing that. Second of all, that was written by descendants of slaves. These are great black history scholars. So we need to stop playing these games. 
Governor DeSantis's hoax claim is false, Anderson. It is not a hoax. Florida's social studies standards for middle schoolers includes the sentence that the moderator, mo- moderator read to him here. And I think Governor DeSantis effectively admitted it was not a hoax when immediately after he called it a hoax, he pivoted to defending that sentence as being written by great scholars who are descendants of slaves. So here are the facts. Florida's new standards for 6th through 8th graders say they will, quote, examine the various duties and trades performed by slaves, and it gives a bunch of examples. Uh, and then it goes on to say uh, that this it says that the standards say that this instruction includes how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. So again, the moderator wasn't making it up. Vice President Harris didn't make it up. It is there in black and white. Now, some context, the governor, his allies, and various other Republicans, I've heard an argument from our Scott Jennings, that they've said that the so-called hoax isn't making it sound like the curriculum broadly is pro-slavery. They correctly note that the standards include item after item after item about the evils of slavery in addition to this line. And they're entitled to make that argument, though some other elements have also received criticism from historians. But in this debate, you know, he was read the precise line. He made it sound like it was a line made up by VP Harris. She'd fabricated the personal benefit thing. She did not. And I'll close by noting that it's not just VP Harris who criticized it. So have black advocacy groups, many historians and various Republican lawmakers, including a black Republican on stage with DeSantis tonight, Senator Tim Scott, who said tonight that Florida should have just cut that line out. Anderson? Yeah, Daniel Dale, thanks very much. We'll have more from uh, Daniel Dale. That was one of the uh, interesting things Tim Scott said on the stage tonight. He did respond to that uh, in lengthy. I don't know if we have the full soundbite of, of, uh, of Tim Scott, but we should we should get that and, and, uh, and play it. You would wanted to mention that. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, it was interesting that he chose to just full stop say it should have it should not have been there. There are no redeeming qualities to slavery. In fact, I'm sorry, we're, I'm told we're happy. Right. So why don't we play what Tim Scott said in response? Florida's new black history curriculum says, quote, slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. You have said slaves develop skills in spite of slavery, not because of it. But many are still hurt. For the sentence of slaves, this is personal. What is your message to them? So first of all, that's a hoax that was perpetrated by Kamala Harris. Uh, We are not going to be doing that. Second of all, that was written by descendants of slaves. These are great black history scholars. So we need to stop playing these games. There is not a redeeming quality in slavery. He and Kamala should have just taken the one sentence out. America has suffered because of slavery, but we've overcome that. Um, we don't have the whole thing he went on. Yeah, I mean, he, he, so there's that line, and I think it was a, a choice that he made there to, to put that stake in the ground on the DeSantis curriculum. He went on to talk about what has caused, you know, African-Americans in this country to experience all of the disparities that we all know about. And he, he, about Lyndon Johnson he pla- blamed Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. He, uh, he said it's not all, it's, it's not, it cannot be blamed on slavery, because obviously people came out of slavery and did things. It was it was a line that I thought was great for Republican voters who want to hear that kind of message. But I think that even Tim Scott knows, this is often the case, even Tim Scott knows that that is not a complete answer. That even after slavery, there are a lot of reasons that black people in the Jim Crow South in the 1960s, the 1970s experienced horrible discrimination where he grew up in South Carolina. And, and then he blames the great, the Lyndon Johnson Great Society, which gave us the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, which allowed black people to vote 
in this country uh, in, in great numbers. He might have an issue with welfare, which I think is what he centered his answer on. But that full context is not there. And I, honestly, at this point, I wonder why not just provide the context? Why, why put it in this sort of small lane that you think is going to be resonating with Republican voters when he's really the only person who's going to give a clear uh, contextual answer on that debate stage? It's still, it's an interesting choice to me. And maybe the second time, he did a very similar thing in the first debate, second time that he's done it now. I, I thought Ron DeSantis had an opportunity, it was, it was just talked about here, to really just say at that point, Look, we, sh- we shouldn't have put it in there. I can understand that's very hurtful to folks, and we made a mistake, and, and it, would have been, it would have been very illuminating, and I think would have, would have, would have attracted more voters to Ron DeSantis than, than, than he would get by saying, you know, doubling down on the point, right? He just said, look, we made a mistake. It was drafted by some folks. We thought it was in there, and it was going to provide some context. Taken out of, might have been taken out of context. It's not what we meant. We're sorry we offended folks, and just move on from that. We learned our lesson and move on. It was an opportunity, which I think was missed. But after it was drafted, I mean— Ron DeSantis didn't write the standards. I mean, no, it was I drafted understand. by Dr. William Allen, right. highly respected African-American history, Ph.D., but, on the work groups, did a number of interviews strongly refuting the way what was written had been characterized. Right, and, and that and that was and that was where point. that's where DeSantis got an opportunity. And that tonight. was where DeSantis, I think, I mean, he, he dug in on this. And it was interesting to me over the summer when when Harris decided to go to Florida an attack that Tim Scott did join with her. It was, a, it was an interesting moment because you don't normally see Republicans aligning themselves uh, with her on attacks nearly, on other Republicans. Nearly universally black Republicans came out. Byron Donalds, as Trumpy yeah. as they come. This was Will not hurt. A this win was, it was pretty DeSantis much by any stretch of the It was such a mistake and, and by That's DeSantis. why tonight it was, yeah. an, it was a layup for him to say we made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, everyone's going to stay where we are. More from the candidate shortly. Reaction from a Democrat at the debate, California Governor Gavin Newsom ahead. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. always hectic when presidential debates wrap up as we and everyone else here try to get fresh reaction from the candidates and their teams. Joining me now is one of the candidates on the debate stage tonight, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Uh, when we were just talking, you, I mean, you saw it on the stage. You were very frustrated. Uh, and what you just said to me before coming on is you think that, from your perspective, the voters lost tonight. What do you mean by that? Well, I think if voters tune into a presidential debate, they want to find out contrast. They want to find out what different candidates represent. And when you're the the candidate who has created more jobs than everybody else on stage, when I've made payroll since my 20s, mid-20s, I've been making payroll longer than everybody else combined on the stage. So I've got more business experience than everybody on the stage. And then I'm the only tech guy on the stage who understands software. And we're talking about, about TikTok, and I don't get a question. I don't get a question on the economy. And then we talk about energy. And North Dakota produces more energy than most OPEC nations. And we're a leader in innovation energy. And the yeah. Biden, Biden energy policies are completely raising the price for every American, no matter what your party affiliation. You're paying too much for your food, too much for your gas and energy, and you don't get a question on that. So, of course, I 
if the frustration came across, which is, hey, maybe we should ask the person. And if you talk about the border, there's only one sitting governor up there that's actually got troops down there right now. It's not like, here's what I'm going to do when I'm president. Here's what we're doing right now. We've got North Dakota troops flying Lakota helicopters from San Diego to the Gulf Coast trying to stop transnational criminal organizations, and you don't get a question on the border. So, of course, a little frustrated because we came tonight to not watch a debate but to participate in the debate and have Americans understand that there's a choice. And you don't feel like you're a participant? Well, I had to fight my way in. I mean, literally, I think I got like one or two questions in two hours. Let me ask you about uh, one of the things that you say that you're very good at, which is you are a governor, you are a chief executive, you've had to bring uh, the, the legislature together. I mean, you obviously are in a very Republican state, but I'm thinking about what's going on in Washington right now. We're just days away from a government shutdown. If you were president and the situation was happening right now on Capitol Hill with uh, House Republicans uh, fighting amongst themselves, many of them, the hardliners, not wanting to support anything at all, how would you get them out of it? Well, this dynamic exists in uh, in red states, too, where you've got sort of two, sure. two factions uh, within the same party. So how would you get them out of it? It's the in way we've Washington. done it in North Dakota. I mean, we, we came in and said, hey, we're going to pass the largest tax cut in the history of the state. We went in. We got that done. There was a number of other important initiatives. We said we're going to cut red tape. We passed 51 red tape reduction it's bills this it's year. Easy to cut. It's easy to pass tax cuts or easier to pass tax cuts in a red state you would, than in Washington. Uh, you'd be surprised on how our party can disagree with each other because mm -hmm. there's just like in Washington, D.C. that McCarthy's dealing with, most red states have got two factions, so got a lot of experience in dealing with that. But what we really need is we have to have leadership that is solving the root problem. And the real problem and the reason why people are saying, you know, don't, don't, create a solution because they're concerned about spending and we should be concerned about spending and in North Dakota when I first became governor we actually cut it not slowed the growth we cut it by 27 percent my first four months in office and everything kept running on time because if you are a business leader you know how to take costs out of government and not reduce the cost of services we're here at the Reagan library as uh, we listen to tonight and as more importantly we watch the way the Republican Party is on a national basis right now it is not the party of Reagan anymore. Do you agree with that? Well, it may not be, but when we take a look, when Reagan took over, we had high inflation. Jimmy Carter was talking about a malaise, and the country was in decline. We had super high interest rates, and we had a Western well, governor. that's about the state of the country. I'm just talking about the state of your party. Well, the state of the party was very divided between Goldwater and, you know, Ford and Reagan. It wasn't a clear thing with him. I mean, Reagan didn't get the nomination in 76, but now here we are where we've got, you know, a Western governor, Ronald Reagan, comes in. There was a Cold War with Russia, and he showed how to win that by getting the economy sprinting and so I think it's time for another Western governor to step in right now to ride in and say look we know how to win a Cold War with China uh, we know how to get this economy sprinting we know how to solve the energy problems and take care of the environment we can do that with innovation not regulation this is a national debate a national conversation you were also telling me before we came on maybe the obvious but people uh, should remember that this nomination is one state by state and contest by contest how do you feel that this will or will not impact the voters on the ground for the caucuses in Iowa first, the primary voters in New Hampshire, in New Hampshire, South Carolina, etc.? Well, I think those early state voters feel a great pride in the role that they play, and they show up and they come to events. Are they going to show up for you? Absolutely. When we're on the ground, we're getting great response. If they if they had us aligned by 
by state polls versus national polls, we'd be closer to the center. So the voters that are actually voting would, would move us up two more places in that group. Uh, and we're just going to continue to reaching out with them because they're the ones that get to decide, not national polls, not cable news networks, and not debates decide. It's the voters that decide who moves yeah. forward. And we know that we understand their concerns, which, again, inflation, energy, national security on everybody's mind. Governor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Dana. I appreciate it. Anderson, I'm going to toss it back to you. Dana, thanks very much. Uh, we're going to be joined uh, shortly, I understand, by California's Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, who is on the scene there in Simi Valley. Until then, let's get a quick reset just past the top of the hour here with our panel. Um, we're also going to have uh, a focus group uh, to kind of get their reactions. Do you think this, I mean, did this move the needle for anybody in a significant way, or did it change the, dy- I mean, didn't change the dynamics of the race? I think you could see that the candidates understand the dynamics, especially it was only a brief exchange. But at one point, Governor Haley or Ambassador Haley and Governor DeSantis went out a little bit. They're the second place candidates, if you will, second and third. Uh, either one of them or somebody else gains 10, 15 points or Donald Trump's the Republican nominee at the moment. So you see that tension. Uh, we'll leave this up to Republican voters. People tend to make these decisions. You know, we do this all the time. We watch every day. Uh, voters are different. They catch the debate. Maybe they haven't followed it all week long. But did the basic dynamic change? No. I think I think David said it earlier in the sense that, you know, market share might move around a little bit. Some of the some of the anti-Trump vote or the not Trump vote, some of it's not anti-Trump, it's just not Trump, uh, might move around among this group. But did anybody come out of there like a catapult? One of the uh, debates between Haley and DeSantis was on fracking. Let's let's play that. What you don't need is a president who is against energy independence. Ron DeSantis is against fracking. He's against drilling. He's been against. You did it. Every He always talks about what happens on day one. You better watch out because what happens on day two is when you're in trouble. Day two in Florida, you banned fracking. You banned offshore drilling. You did it on federal lands. And you took green subsidies that you didn't have to take. Governor DeSantis, you were mentioned you had the right to respond. 30 seconds. Yeah. I just did a plan out in West Texas for American energy dominance. We're going to choose Midland over Moscow. We're going to choose the Marcellus over the Mullahs. And we're going to choose Bakken over Beijing. And we are going to lower your gas prices. We are going to get that job done because it's important for our national security. It's important for jobs. And that's one of the best ways to drive down inflation. Governor DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, this question is for you. Our, our voters enacted a constitutional you amendment banned it before that they doesn't voted. allow. No, it's not true. You they, banned it before no, they voted. Nikki, and not you're, only that, you're not, you're not, you're, they didn't she, vote on She's totally wrong. They voted it in. That's what we did. Onshore, we do do it in Florida. We don't have as much as maybe West Texas, but we do it. But that was a constitutional amendment. So that's just wrong. And let's just get real here. My plan will get the job done. You we are going to be energy dominant, and that's what's going to happen. The voters didn't even vote on fracking. It'll be interesting to see in folks. Not quite sure who's telling the truth there. Kind of chose uh, <laughs> alliteration over answering. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Governor Haley, I mean, she is shining in these debates because... She is doing her homework, too, but it doesn't sound rehearsed. It sounds Mm -hmm. like somebody who is uh, she's parrying on that debate stage. And even the body language, I I do like to look at body language in these debates because people really are looking at, like, what are these candidates doing? I don't think it helped DeSantis to not even engage with her. Mm -hmm. She was engaging directly with him. He wasn't really engaging with her. And I, I know that a lot of 
I mean, David, you can tell me, a lot of the candidates, they're sometimes told it's direct to the camera, you're talking to the American people. But in that case, I'm not sure that that was particularly... Oh, I, I think well, except well, to, to, you would have said, answer her in some way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before you turn to the camera, and, and he, that's what he, he, he could have looked do. at her. He could have looked at her instead of like awkwardly looking at the camera and smiling and, and kind of laughing in an awkward fashion. I, I think to your point, uh, you know, she had an incredibly good answer on education. There was a part that she was asked about education, and she she had receipts. I mean, she was firing off you know numbers of you know w- you know literacy rates and math scores. I mean, like someone who just come from an educational summit. I mean, she was really good. She's, you can tell she's been a governor, very successful governor. I want to go back to Dana at uh, Simi Valley. Go. Thanks, Anderson. I'm here with I'm here with not a Republican, but a Democrat, the governor of the state of California, where we are. Thank you so much for coming here. Great to be here. You're here in the belly of the beast. Uh, what are you suggesting? A Democrat at the Reagan Library during a Republican debate is the belly of the beast? I mean, I mean maybe. objectively. Yeah. Uh, but it's fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't enjoy the debate. I thought it was a nothing burger. Honestly, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed in 72 hours to think you guys will be talking much about any aspect of this debate. I didn't think any punches particularly landed. A lot of people talking over each other. Uh, I think DeSantis has a lot to answer to. I know we were just talking about that uh, because he flat-out lied about his executive order. He lied about hydraulic fracking, which he did in executive order. I'm governor. I know what an executive order is and what it isn't. He did an executive order opposing offshore oil as he's attacking the Biden administration for not doing more drilling. So hypocrisy and a lie and caught red-handed by Haley. One of the things that uh, Ron DeSantis also talked about was crime yep. and specifically talked about crime here in your state of California. Let's listen to that. Well, crime in these cities is, is one of the strongest signs of the decaying of America. We can't be successful as a country if people aren't even safe uh, to live in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco. Just being in Southern California over the last couple of days, my wife and I have met three people who have been mugged on the street. Well, I, I want to, and this may be an opportunity I appreciate, uh, to look up uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and he may want to familiarize himself with Miami, Florida, and his homicide rates, which are 100% higher than San Francisco. Crime rates in his own backyard. He has a higher homicide rate statewide, 16% higher than the state of California. Uh, for whatever reason, he didn't bring up Tennessee, Arkansas, South Carolina. He didn't bring up Texas, all with higher crime rates than the state of California. Uh, this is an old trope. I mean, if you're in New York, so I think people are getting a little exhausted uh, by the fact that we're focusing on New York's uh, crime rate and not the crime rate in these other Republican-led cities in Republican states, eight out of the top ten murder states. You're Republican not going to say states. that your home city of San Francisco is in good shape. Uh, I'm saying that crime's a real issue. But I find the hypocrisy, the unwillingness to be honest with the American people and the unwillingness to take responsibility, Ron DeSantis take responsibility for his own crime rates in his own major cities. Uh, I find that curious, not surprising. And I offer that as a point of contrast and consideration. That's all. One of the big uh, discussions, points of discussions, were, excuse me, was immigration. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy talked about wanting to militarize the border and no birthright citizenship. Nikki Haley talking about defunding sanctuary cities and states like yours. Uh, And and it it went on and on. Let's just first talk about, take those point by point. I'm just curious about the birthright citizenship. The point that he made, and, and others on the stage made, that 
um, if you're a diplomat, your kids are not American citizens. So why should an illegal, uh, undoc uh, I, undocumented immigrant? Yeah, I, I, I just, I completely disagree with them. We have a, a different point of view. This is a golden oldie. This comes up in Republican debates over and over and over again. Nothing's going to happen in this space. Uh, I remember Trump talking about mass deportations. He wasn't able to achieve that in four years as president. They're doubling down on that, including Vivek, who talked about removing family units. Uh, these guys are not just talking about militarizing the border. They're talking about invading uh, one of our critical trading partners and allies in Mexico by launching attacks and strikes. I mean, that's a hell of a thing. You care about energy imbalance and prices? Consider the amount of energy we import from places like Mexico. Uh, so this is, this, is, this is serious stuff. You got DeSantis talking about ready, fire, aim, shooting people with backpacks, even though 89% of the fentanyl and those that are convicted fentanyl are American citizens and the and vast majority, yes, coming through our border crossings, including San Ysidro right here, uh, where I put the National Guard helping support Border Patrol. And of course, all that, the backdrop, not one of them said anything about the fact they want to defund the Border Patrol. They want to defund the military. Uh, and we're going to walk off another cliff uh, as it relates to a government shutdown. And that's their party. And that wasn't even brought up tonight. Well, you mentioned that you have had to send uh, your National Guard troops to yeah. the border. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is a, a real problem. Fentanyl is a serious issue. I've invested over a billion dollars in it. I, I, the day I got into office, I kept the National Guard. I've added to the National Guard. Does more I've been need on to happen on a federal Absolutely. level? Absolutely. I mean, I know Congress is... Immigration it. system is broken in the United States. The asylum system is broken in the United States. Biden put out a plan eight-year pathway to citizenship. He talked about TPS, farm workers. He talked about H-1B visas. He talked about clearing out uh, the backlogs in the court. It was a starting point. The Republican Party's not even debating it. So spare me that this is Biden's crisis. It's a crisis of our own creation because parties are not coming together like the old gang of eight. I'm old enough to remember 2013 when there was bipartisanship on this. People have to stop this is a serious issue. I'm a border state governor. I don't need to be introduced to this issue. I intimately involve it. I go down the border all the time. It's a real issue. And we all have responsibility to own it, just like Ronald Reagan himself did in 1986. Well, you mentioned Washington. There's a shutdown looming three, three days. One of the things that Republicans are pushing for to keep the government running is additional federal dollars for border security. Does that sound like uh, a good idea to uh, you as a governor in, in who could use it? broad strokes. I mean, uh, I'm all for supporting uh, our men and women in uniform at the border. They're having a difficult time recruiting, retaining workforce. A lot of folks aren't getting through the background checks. That's why I've helped supplement with some of the National Guard. I'm not one of those open border Democrats. I was never a defund police Democrat either. This is a real issue. We have a dynamic two-way border in terms of trade. It's a profound model because it's the largest port of entry in the western hemisphere in the state of california you haven't seen the front but you guys aren't down here every week it's not to suggest we we don't have problems we do but we have managed our borders effectively uh, more effectively than most but it is a real issue in democrats it's a point of contrast perhaps i think we have a responsibility not to deny the reality at the border. We have a responsibility to be constructive and work to get Republicans to move. Admitting what you just said, the problem at the border no, and doing it. The Biden administration put out a plan. 
Republicans have put out nothing except rhetoric, and, and, and they demagogue this issue for political gain. This is obviously a political debate, so let me just ask you about the raw politics. First of all, of you being here, you said a couple of times in your answers, by point of contrast. Uh, how important is it for the Democrats to step up and make that contrast, particularly when you look at poll after poll? I know you're going to what you're going to say about polls, but let's just let me know that there's an overall feeling of, of concern in this country. How how important is it for people like you to continue to do what you're doing, where you're doing let me, it? Let me give you just a proof point tonight. Yeah, <laughs> these guys continue to say Pence needs to look this up. Five point nine four. 5.94 quads. I've lost everybody. But it's worth Googling and PolitiFact. We're more energy independent than we've ever been in our history under the Biden administration currently by a margin of 5.94 quads. It's the highest margin in history with the lowest unemployment rate in my lifetime with the lowest unemployment rate for women and for blacks and Hispanics. We have the lowest poverty rate for African-Americans in our history. We have the lowest insurance uh, we are meeting Why lowest aren't people out rate there of feeling uninsured the statistics in our that you're system. that you're citing because we don't talk about it we don't communicate it we tend to play in this frame we're talking about DEICRT anything with three letters DOJ FBI I mean we we're just prone to distraction when we got who's, a record when you say of accomplishment we, who's we Democrats uh, all of us are distracted and we need to be more forceful 13.5 million jobs almost seven times more than the last three republican presidents combined joe biden administration 47 million jobs created since ronald reagan left office in 1989 47 out of 49 million done by democratic administrations that's 96 percent this jobs debate is not even interesting the only thing that's interesting is the last three republican presidents have one thing in common recessions i mean we dominate on the facts, but not the narrative. And we've got to shape shift that narrative, and we've got to be more forceful. That's why I'm here at the Reagan Library. Governor of California, fifth largest economy in the world, with a very obvious side hustle as being a top spokesperson for the Biden Humble to campaign. be asked. Humble to be asked. <laughs> I mean it. Governor, thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Anderson, back to you. Dana, thanks very much. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom at the debate. So, I mean, it's interesting to see him there and, as Dan said, in the belly of the beast making this argument. Yeah, well, I think he I think the White House wanted him to be there I'm to sure do exactly uh, what they did. And he's sort of touring the country uh, doing this. And he famously, uh, you know, is challenged or I guess he challenged yep. DeSantis uh, to a debate on uh, on Fox. Um, and he's you know, he's an effective spokesperson uh the one the the last question dana asks is the is the one that i think uh a lot of people ask which is if the statistics are so positive why is uh the president not getting credit for it i think one of the reasons is none of the things he mentioned had to do with prices and even though inflation has gone down food prices uh, gas prices are still high. And that's how people judge the economy. That's how they live the economy. They go to the store, they see, uh, they see prices on the cash register, they go to the gas station and they see prices at the pump. And so it's, I know this from my own experience when we were in the Obama administration, we were making real progress on the economy. But if we claim too much, even if it was backed up by statistics and it, and people did not feel it, uh, they would turn off. And we had to f 
we had to develop strategies for uh, kind of getting the information out in ways that people were willing to accept. So I'm not sure that the, the governor is right, that it's just a matter of not claiming these achievements enough. I think it's also about people's lived experience. Before Donald Trump, the last incumbent president to only serve one term was George H.W. Bush. And if you go back and look at the numbers, they, had a, they did have a mild recession. The numbers were getting much better heading into the campaign year, but they could not convince the American people because their leg, I call it your legs are tired, right? If you go through a recession, you go through months, you have a health care crisis, you have a mortgage crisis, you have an inflation crisis, you just get tired. It takes a long time to feel better about that, even when things start to get better. And so to your point, you know, I've been in Iowa and New Hampshire a bit more recently, uh, Republicans especially, no, they're anti-Joe Biden, but even Democrats still, still, you know, and now gas prices are starting to tick up again mm. as we head into the winter. So if you think about it, the Democratic calendar has changed. The president does not face a serious primary challenge. But you go to a state like New Hampshire, a place like Iowa, where you're paying for home heating oil because it gets cold in the wintertime and your gas prices are going up and you still have the hangover, whether it's COVID pandemic or the inflation. Uh, you're just you don't feel it yet. You don't believe it. Even if you start to feel it a little bit, you just you're afraid to believe it. Well, it takes a long time. And I do think it was a gamble to, you know, call it Bidenomics because then you're saying you own it because I think more of a help is on the way message would have been much stronger because the reality is all the polls bear out. People still feel like they're struggling in this economy. You're, when you when you label it after you, you're basically going to own how people feel. And I think that that, that, that is some, that's probably the strongest case Republicans have to make against Joe Biden is simply the state of the economy. And Donald Trump, who has a very hard time putting together a coherent message, but could talk about where the economy was before the covid pandemic, where you had record jobs gains. And it's and, how people felt. People felt better about it. They that's felt what I hear the, the most economy. is I felt better. Right. And, and, and David, to your point, I mean, Gavin Newsom may have lots of lots of problems, but. He's an incredibly effective communicator, and he does a great job. So it'll be interesting to see. He's got this debate coming up with Ron DeSantis, right, which Governor DeSantis may want to rethink after that, watching him just there in that, in that interview. But, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how much more the Biden administration keeps rolling out Gavin Newsom it, as a surrogate, because he's very effective at it, right? It much more a, effective than the, than the current president. Yeah, it's an interesting tactical question. You, you don't a, want people to fall in love with the surrogate. He's much better. Most of the time, you know, if you're the president, you speak for yourself. But it strikes me that the Biden campaign is going to have to more than any other recent incumbent lean on other people, whether it's Newsom or the vice president, other governors. They're going to have to depend on a lot of other people to make the case. And that's partly because I think they don't have a ton of confidence in Biden to make the case. Uh, And also because his own credibility on these issues right now is so low that it, it may they may think. (laughs) <laughs> other voices are more helpful here. And so it, it, it is a bit of a high wire act yeah, to depend I, on non-household names to I, tell to, to I, tell the story. I also think that even in the best of times, given the jaundice of our politics, it's hard for a president to win a referendum. And uh, when you're, you, you know, so I, I'd be reluctant about, and I think Biden's achieved some some f- historic things on infrastructure and 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 uh, energy and some other on, on uh, climate and some other areas. But you have to throw this into a comparative. This has to be a choice. And rather than asking for a report card uh, from the American people, I think you've got to throw it into that choice between uh, Trump and uh, and, Almighty and Biden. The alternative. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and look, I, I don't think it hurts to keep. Biden sort of out of the headlines, receding from the picture. I mean, if Gavin Newsom can make this about 
Ron DeSantis's record in Florida and how he's flipping that, that's beneficial to a Joe Biden. If uh, someone else can make it about Donald Trump and his indictments and all of the charges that he's facing, that's beneficial to Joe Biden. I think that they're comfortable with Biden not being out there every single day and other people we call it you may call it stealing the spotlight, but but I think that there's no need in their view for Biden to be out front right now. All risk, no reward. We're going to take a quick uh, break just ahead. What voters in Iowa made of what they saw on the debate stage tonight. Welcome back. We are live inside the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, talking to candidates. And as you see, we have one here, uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Hello. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Uh, You've got a little spicy between you and your former governor. Uh, There was a lot of uh, back and forth. Was that something that surprised you? It surprised some of us. Well, I was surprised by the uh, the uh, the vitriol. But the good news is, this is like a football game. You put your uniform on, you go on the field, and you you play to win. And bottom line is, for her to talk about uh, any kind of spending when she offered a tax increase that would be a couple hundred million dollars in a small state like South Carolina, that would be devastating. Increasing the gas tax by ten cents. So having a chance to have a contrast about where we are on the issues of spending or where we are in China, frankly. She called China, as are you an ambassador, a great friend, uh, or on the issue of abortion. I believe that having a national limit of 15 weeks where three out of four Americans are, that is a place where we should be. Uh, Allowing states like this one, California, New York, to have abortion on demand up until the 40th week, that's just devastating. You talked about the uh, curriculum in Florida. Uh, that uh, Ron DeSantis uh, put out there, the idea that uh, slavery allowed for people who were enslaved to find skills. Um, You also talked about Kamala Harris. Yes. What did you mean by that? So they both signed off on similar curriculum that said basically the same thing. My point is that whether you're Kamala or Ron, the bottom line is simple. There are no redeeming qualities in slavery, period. The idea of being here at the Reagan Library uh, as somebody who has been on Capitol Hill for a long time, you've been in politics for a long time, you've seen the change in your party, um, feel connected to the notion of the Reagan Republican Party, given what you're seeing, not just on the campaign trail with fellow candidates, but where your day job is on Capitol Hill, especially considering there's going to be potentially a shutdown uh, in, in the next coming days. Of course I do. But listen, Ronald Reagan helped us understand that all things are possible, that the city on the hill still exists. Today, we need another optimistic, positive leader who believes in the future of this nation. I know that America can do for anyone what she's done for me. I'm the kid that grew up in a single-parent household, mired in poverty, four different elementary schools by the fourth grade. It's this country. Thank God Almighty for America. You, um, sort of, your persona is, you're you're the nice guy uh, on the campaign trail, and you came in here tonight clearly wanting to show a different dimension to your uh, candidacy and to your character as as a fighter. Is that fair? Well, I think people call me a happy warrior because I'm a happy warrior, but if you're happy and you're a warrior, sometimes there there are issues that you must defend. I should be a voice for the voiceless. I will defend those who cannot defend themselves. It's an old notion from the Old Testament that says that someone 
should stand up for those who can't stand for themselves. Sign me up. Someone did it for me. I want to do it for the rest of the folks. And I can't let you go without asking about the uh, the goatee. Is that going to be your new campaign look? You know, what, what, what grade do you give it? Uh, that's not my job. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I've just known you for a long time. I haven't seen the uh, the goatee. Well, I think the uh, the gray and the the gray is such a good contrast to my pecan tan skin. <laughs> Okay. So you're going for the gray beard. I got it. I guess I should have said mocha. Anyway, so bottom line is I have no good answer for that one. Yeah. Senator, thank you so much for stopping. Appreciate it. I know it's been a very long day. Take care. God thank bless. you. Anderson, back to you. Dana, thanks. Earlier tonight, Scott Jennings went out of his way to underscore the degree to which the campaign from here on out is all about Iowa. Iowa, he said, is everything. With that in mind, CNN's Gary Tuckman in Nevada, Iowa, with voters who watched the debate. Gary? Anderson, we're 110 days away from the first nominating caucuses here in the state of Iowa, and we have come back to the Hawkeye State to talk to Iowa voters who we watched the debate with. And we're actually in the same county we were in last month watching that debate, Story County, home of Iowa State University. We have some Iowa State people here because we want to see how their thoughts compare today to how they compared last month. It's nice to be here with you again. Thank you for inviting us. First thing I'm going to ask you, if you had to write a headline about this debate, what would your headline be? Republicans angry that they agree with each other. Okay, you're talking about the commotion there. Yes? I'd say a really good night for the uh, free marketplace of ideas and the GOP. Yes? Uh, Rude Republicans. Rude Republicans. (laughs) Did the commotion, the chaos bother you during the debate? Raise your hand if it bothered you. Raise your hand if it was okay. Okay, you're a lone opinion right there. What I want to ask you is this. When we were here last month, I asked the question, who do you think did best? Ramaswamy came in first. Haley came in second. DeSantis came in third last month. This month, who did you pick last month? I picked Haley last month. You picked Haley last month when you were here. Who did you pick today? DeSantis. Why? I feel like he represented himself well, and he did a lot to show that he is a true winner in the that he could win a general election. How about you? Who did you pick last month? I picked Haley last month. And this month? Haley as well. How come? Um, I honestly think both Haley and DeSantis had excellent debates, and I think when I, a lot of Iowans are up for grabs right now, and I think DeSantis has long been looked at as the main alternative in the race, and I think the fact that she has strong favorability, polls the best against Biden, had two strong debate performances, and when people meet her, they like her, and so I think that'll give a lot of folks a reason to look at her. So I just think she'll see a large boost, but I also think DeSantis did himself well tonight, too. Last month, who did you pick? Haley. And today? Haley. How come? Uh, Every single time she went to the debate, she was realistic. She had the facts, and she was strong. She showed what a true leader does, and she takes control. And I like that about someone who's running for president. They are someone who um, can can exhibit a lot in themselves, and that's what she did. And last month, who did you pick? Vivek. And today? DeSantis. Okay. I thought that uh, DeSantis, um, because Vivek won the last debate, and I think that was the overall consensus, he was the target tonight. And so I think that took a lot of the personal attacks against, uh, away from DeSantis, and he was able to speak to the issues more than everybody else. So I thought that was important. I think what's interesting about this group is of these 18 people, 16 of them are undecided. They don't know definitely who will be all caucus for come January. Two people have made decisions. This gentleman right here, who have you decided on? Doug Bergman. 
Okay, so you like Burgum, and you? Uh, Ron DeSantis, military veteran to Iraq. Okay, now what's interesting is none of you are ready yet to vote to caucus for Donald Trump, the former president of the United States. Something that was brought up quite a bit tonight by Christie, by DeSantis. Is Donald Trump disrespectful to Republican voters like you for not being part of these debates? What do you think? No. Yes. No, yeah. How come? No. I just think that, you know, it's, it's his decision. It's a personal decision. And I think he feels like he, he has a lot of people that just know what he's about. He's been here several times. He's done several rallies. He's done lots of interviews. And so I think he probably feels like that kind of takes the place of him having to be on the debate stage. And I don't think he feels like he has a really good shot with what's happened in the past. Would you, would you like to hear him talk about the abortion issue, for example? It bothered me, the abortion issue that's come up. Yeah. But he wasn't here. Okay. What about you? I think it's disrespectful that he didn't come to um, try to earn Iowans' votes because so many people's votes are still up for grabs here in Iowa. And so not coming to um, try to earn that with the other candidates, I think, is a sign of disrespect. And I don't think he earned anyone's vote by not coming. All right, here's what I want to ask a show of hands now. Okay, I'm doing alphabetical order. Who you think did best during this debate? All of you. Bergam. One. Christy. Okay, so his toughness didn't appeal to anybody tonight. DeSantis. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Haley. One, two, three, four, five, six. Pence. Ramaswamy. One. Scott. All right, so it looks like DeSantis, the winner in this room. Who do you think this was a bad night for? Pence. 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 Why are you all saying Pence? I, I think he completely destroyed his credibility. He was directly questioned on his record during the Trump administration on, I forgot what issue specifically was brought up, but he had no defense that uh, they had campaigned on, so again, I forget the issue specifically. Obamacare. And he, Obamacare. he didn't, Obamacare, yes. They didn't follow through with that. And instead of answering the question that was given him about why that wasn't followed through and will he do differently as president himself, he just went off about something completely irrelevant and never answered the question. A lot of you raised your hands about Pence. Who else raised their hand about Pence? Why do you think that? Well, I think that uh, he, you know, he comes across a little bit like uh, not very believable to me. He's, he's, he's rather pious sounding um, in his manner. And it makes it come across like, you know, I'm just a politician trying to get your vote and it doesn't seem as believable as he could. So the final question, do you think this was good for the party, this debate tonight? Yes. Yeah. Anyone have a problem with the debate, with the commotion? You. Well, it's not with the commotion, but I think the format doesn't allow the issues to be expounded on by each individual. Uh, the moderators had way too many subjects, and they had one or two people speaking on each subject. I think there are too many people in the debate, and I think that that needs to be ironed out. What a lot of these yeah. folks have told me today is they'd like to see microphones turned off at times. Is that correct? Yes. 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 Right. Thank you all for inviting us. And as you can see, in this room at least, here in the state of Iowa, a good night for DeSantis. Anders. Gary, thanks so much. And thank everybody in the room uh, for us. Always fascinating to, to hear. Yeah. 
Uh, it is. And so you're listening to Iowa voters there. Uh, I'm looking one, two, three, four. I've been in touch with some of the voters we're working with in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, and you get the same impression there in terms of ha- the people who were for Haley going in were for Haley coming out. Uh, you see the reaction there with Gary's group. Uh, DeSantis doing OK, uh, which is good for Haley and DeSantis. And it's better for Donald Trump uh, because, right. you know, because you keep the two people if, if you're if the potential breakout candidates are Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, is there a third? No one, you know, Ramaswamy, Ramaswamy maybe Ramaswamy. after the first debate, maybe he did come up some. But if they're all just trading, you know, goes back and forth and Trump stays at high 30s or 40s. And in some polls, he's around 50 in these states. So the question is, there's another debate in I think it's 42 days or 41 days from now. Uh, number one, can anybody start to pull away into a, like a, a solo second place as opposed to a bunch and then number two, you heard it from those voters there, A, how many qualify by the RNC rules? They're tougher for the third debate. And then B, do the donors and some other big people in the party start to say, look, sorry, you, know, you three got to get out so that these four can stay in and you know, fight yeah. Trump. I think the Pences of the world, the Christies, even the Tim Scotts, I mean, the reaction in that room yeah, to those names, brutal. Yeah, were, yeah. it was brutal. And they're not doing what they said they set out to do by being in the race. It really raises the question, what is the rationale going forward? And I think the voters in the Republican primary have been saying through the polls for a pretty long time, the folks in the low single digits, it's not you're not seeing a whole lot of movement there. And yet they stay in the race for whatever their personal rationales are. And it's not really changing. You're seeing movement higher up five and above in the, in the low teens, that's where all the action is. So for whatever that's worth, that may ride where this all goes. Obama 100 days out in Iowa? I mean, Trump has a lead way bigger than Hillary Clinton ever 20s? had. Trump has the biggest lead yeah, he was ever. In the 20s. He was in the 20s. In fact, there was an ABC yeah. poll in late August uh, that had him in the lead. Uh, he wasn't. But. But, uh, but they, he was already he was on the way. Well. He was on the way up. But I, I would just say one thing. Christie's not running in Iowa and you wouldn't expect him to do well with this group. He, he's putting his chips in New Hampshire. The latest New Hampshire polls show a bunch uh, in second place with DeSantis, like 10, 11, with uh, Haley, uh, Christie and DeSantis. But the, the interesting thing about that, and I honestly think this, you know, I think Donald Trump is in a very good position and it's going to take a lot to dislodge him. The one thing that's interesting about Haley is she's competing in both Iowa and New Hampshire. She's actually well positioned in New Hampshire to 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 do well, maybe not to beat uh, Trump, but she's moving up there. If she were to do well in Iowa, even if she doesn't win Iowa, you know, and I, I remember you well, you. This may even predate you, John. But in 1984, Gary Hart got 16 percent of the vote in New in in Iowa. Uh, Walter Mondale, who was the runaway front runner, the former vice president, got 49. And Hart won New Hampshire. He catapulted out of there. He finished second. He won New Hampshire, and then it became a race. Now Mondale ultimately won. I'm not predicting that's going to happen, but Haley. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interest in her. I think there'll continue to be a lot of interest in her after this and debate. she's also well-positioned, obviously, in South Carolina. Yeah, she's got the state, longest longevity. Is, yeah, she, yeah. She's, she's well-positioned in all those first three states, and I think that's why you saw her go after Tim Scott. She's trying to lay some groundwork here. Yeah, everyone, thank you. Coming up, new information on the parts of the debate that had the biggest impact online with voters. Our Harry Enten joins us next. We 
are starting to get some data on the impact of tonight's debate on those who watched or were otherwise paying attention online. Harry Enten joins us now with more on that. So you've been looking at what people were searching for online as the debate was going on. What's the biggest moment in the first hour of the debate? Yeah, I mean, it won't be too much of a surprise. A lot of the candidates went after Vivek Ramaswamy, and there was one exchange with Tim Scott. Let's take a listen to that. We think about the fact that Vivek just said we were all good people, and I appreciate that because last debate, he said we were all bought and paid for. And I thought about that for a little while and said, you know, I can't imagine how you could say that knowing that you were just in business with the Chinese Communist Party and the same people that funded... Hunter Biden, millions of dollars, was a partner this of yours as well. It's not nonsense. So look, you, here's what I'll, 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 I want to respond. These, these are good people who are tainted by a broken system. And it's not the fault I, I of anybody who's involved. Gosh, I love that moment because it just sort of illustrates this divide within the Republican Party right now. And how do you attack Vivek Ramaswamy? But I think going after him on his potential China connections is a good strategy. Why? Take a look at the polling. Who do Republicans believe America's top enemy is? Overwhelmingly, it's China. 76% Russia, who obviously a lot of folks think we're enemies with. Not even close, it's just 12%. But I think that exchange also illustrated something going on with Ramaswamy, and that is a lot of the candidates on that debate stage just can't stand the guy. Uh, you know, we saw that there with Scott. We've also seen it with Nikki Haley as well. And you know what? Those attacks do seem to be working because what do we see in Vivek Ramaswamy's polling? Compare where he was before the first debate to where he is now, and we see that his support nationally has basically been sliced in half. He was at 9% pre-first debate. He's at 5% now. And I wouldn't be surprised after tonight and all those attacks, he may even go down a little bit further than he is at this point. Who was the most searched candidate during the debate? It wasn't anybody on stage. It was the man who decided not to appear, uh, Donald Trump. And of course, there was a big moment uh, Chris Christie tried to make of it with Donald Trump. Let's take a listen to that. I want to look at that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight, not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You know, I, I have to admit, I, I've heard of a lot of, you know, attack lines against folks and him calling him Donald Dunk is not exactly one of the strongest debate lines. It's certainly not up there with Reagan. Uh, but more than that, I mean, just take a look at where we are in terms of the favorable ratings of where Chris Christie is and where Donald Trump is. I mean, the fact is Donald Trump is beloved by Republican voters. He has a 79 percent favorable rating. Uh, Chris Christie's unfavorable rating is actually pretty close to that 79 percent at 66 percent. So, you know, that might be something that Chris Christie liked to say up there. It was something he might have gotten enjoyment out of. But the fact of the matter is Donald Trump in the polling is overwhelmingly the favorite for the Republican nomination. And attacks like that, simply put, aren't going to cut it, especially from a candidate who is as disliked as Chris Christie is. All right. Harry Anton, appreciate it. Thanks. Thank Let's you. go to Dana. Anderson, thank you so much. With me here, two of our terrific colleagues, CNN political director David Chalian and CNN's Jeff Zeleny. Hi, guys. Hi, See, we're always the last in the in the room because we have so much to talk about. Uh, Jeff, I love we were talking beforehand. We'll take you in on our conversations off camera and your sort of analysis of what we saw tonight. What was it? Look, as the seasons have changed, uh, just the sense of urgency on the debate stage tonight was so different from Milwaukee. Uh, we are now in fall. 
and you could just feel the uh, you know the imperative on the minds of each candidate to try and do something, trying to make a move in this race, really person by person by person. I noticed it near the beginning when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he wasted no time directly confronting Donald Trump because that's what he needs to do. He said he's missing in action. And then it went on from there. So I just think the, the feeling of time could be running out for some of these candidates in a scramble for second place. They wanted to make their move. Yeah, and I, it, I would just note for each person, and I agree with what you're saying about the sense of urgency, the mission is different, right? right. And so um, the other thing Ron DeSantis did was to make sure and get his biography out there. And this is something we've heard that they want to do more of. He he made sure to get in to remind everyone that he was a veteran, that he served. He, he doubled back to talk about appearing at the 9-11 memorial recently. He wanted to get that out there. Uh, he So we are still, it's, it's weird, we're still in this introductory phase where they need to get certain pieces of their bio out to voters, but there is no doubt. Tim Scott was seeking relevance in a way that we hadn't seen before. He revved up his engine, taking on the woman who gave him his job. I mean, she appointed him to the United States right. Senate, and there was no time for niceties there. I mean, he was definitely uh, going after her. And I think that in addition to DeSantis and um, Nikki Haley and Chris Christie all going after Trump, I still think it's hard to see how Donald Trump is not the big winner in this debate tonight. And I know that feels like an easy out. You had seven people on the stage. He wasn't there. But nobody here emerged with a moment where you saw clearly, that's it. They're going to be able to consolidate all the non-Trump support. Well, that was going to be my question for you, because of the three of us, definitely you have spent the most time in the first two states of Iowa and New Hampshire. You've talked to the voters who are open to and maybe even searching for a non-Donald Trump candidate. Do you think what they heard tonight will be persuasive? I don't think so, because to David's point, some of the questions uh, really were not raised at all. Indictments, none of the criminal charges and really the uncertainty about the former president were mentioned at all. I was thinking back to a conversation I had with a pastor, of course, evangelical voters, so important in Iowa. And he said, really, what's going to happen if he's the nominee and he's suddenly convicted? So there are some of those questions. So that is one thing that was not addressed. Abortion policy was barely addressed. It was uh, sort of at the end, but it was not a subject of this. That will still be a part of the debate. But look, we talked a lot about uh, the former president being in Michigan. Let's look ahead to Sunday. He will be in Ottumwa, Iowa. He is going to Iowa because the primary race is still on in his mind. He is not, of course, he's looking ahead to the general, and all of them would like to be, but he is looking first and foremost to Iowa. So I don't think that uh, th anything changed too much uh, with him, but I think below him things may have changed a bit tonight, and that is significant. And that race is on by necessity for those candidates not named Trump. What just becomes clear by the day is there's only one path at this point, and that is for one of these folks to score real political points in those first couple of contests. If they are unable to do that, and I mean getting close to Trump and showing that they could be a real threat, if not actually outright winning, if they don't do that, it's hard to see how Donald Trump just doesn't steamroll his way through. Well, and you know, here we are uh, at the Reagan Library debate. We were talking about uh, CNN's debate eight years ago at the beginning of the 2016 right. primary uh, session. Scott Walker, uh, after that debate, he dropped out. Now, it was a much bigger field. We had to have two debates uh, because there were so many candidates. But then the question is, really, at this point, um, going back to the beginning when you had so many people who were worried about Donald Trump running away with it, about consolidating the field, does that even matter anymore? I mean, because we were looking at some statistics. I mean, if you add up the just the polling percentage of those who were on the stage, 
none of them, if they were one person, would have uh, would be beating Donald Trump. I think it matters for now because there are still uncertainties in the race. And uh, I always try and remind myself as we talk to voters, they are not uh, getting ahead of the process. They are mm -hmm. letting it play out. So let's do the same and allow this race to play out. But for that sense, there is still a sense of urgency. We will see how many of these will be on the next uh, debate stage, which is in early November, some 40 days or so away. So there is time, as you said, to introduce themselves, but uh, there's not a lot of time, uh, three and a half months till the caucuses. You know, what, what Jeff said about where Donald Trump is going to go on Sunday is so important to Iowa. And uh, so it's not as if he is, Iowa is important on a general election level, but it is obviously the first caucus uh, state that is, I think, a, a sort of telltale sign that they're nervous about taking things for granted inside the Trump campaign. You said about taking things for granted. That is right. They do have their sights set on a potential general election and sure. do want to contrast with Joe Biden. But they would think it's dereliction of duty as, as a campaign if they were to let their foot up off the gas in terms of their attacks of Ron DeSantis, who they still see as their biggest threat to him in, in getting this nomination. David Chalian, Jeff Zeleny, no two people I would rather be with at the end of Great a very important night. Thanks. You too. You too. Thank you so much. Anderson, back to you. Yeah, Dana, thank you. Thanks to all our guests tonight. The news continues next here on CNN. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.